girl. She's out there somewhere. This is the story of a boy from Hollywood who never dreamed the girl he'd want most was down here. I'll stop the world Hello. Who invited you? Oh, wow. You mean you have to be invited? That explains it. What? Well, everyone is dressed for See, if I had been invited, I would have known this was a costume party. Right. <laughs> It's the story of a girl from the valley who never dreamed she'd ever be seen with a boy from over here. Looks like I'm not getting out of this car. All right, but when they attack the car, save the radio. So when can I see you again? I'm here with you now. I know. This is the story of Randy and Julie, the way they come together people who try to pull them apart. Like, don't you think they have parties over there? Oh, where? At the zoo? This geek that she's with could scar her for life. God, life? If you think she's confused, you should see her father. I'm together now. Be right there. hot. She's from the valley. He's not. Valley girl. Welcome to Midnight Flicks, a podcast dedicated to discussing movies relegated to a late night purgatory. <laughs> I'm one of your hosts, Adam Walker, and joining me as always is co-host Pat, Pat Mitchell. I wanted to have... The the creepy spooky villain voice for the least creepy spooky <laughs> for today's episode movie that we've <laughs> talked about yet. So just to throw pe- people off, yeah, you 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 picked the an appropriate episode for your Vincent Price voice for sure. <laughs> yes, in, inappropriate, I should say. Yes, ghouls, ghosts, and goblins, children of the night. Tonight we have... I'm waiting for you to fall on your fucking face, trying to pivot into this. A particularly (laughs) macabre foray into the cinematic depths of the 80s. I thought about it the other day, I realized, and this will dovetail into the movie we're talking. I was thinking about it earlier, about how, man, I really, I don't go out of my lane much. Every movie I pick is from the 80s. 
and that's not intentional. I just that's just that's where my brain goes. It's not like I'm. I just want to stay in the eighties. Those are just where my my favorite movies came from. You're just like a curmudgeonly cinema guy. I am. I'm a curmudgeon, curmudgeonly guy with everything: music, cinema, art. Oh people. yes, not not just this included. Yeah, uh, that's okay. I know what I like, and I like this movie that we're going to talk about tonight. Um, I don't know how you feel uh, about it, Pat. So that's why I'm going to ask you. What have been your thoughts about tonight's movie, which is 1983's uh, Valley Girl? Give me some give me some thoughts on the top. Yeah, um, I don't know where I land with this. Um, I don't think I like it. Aww. <laughs> I'm it's very definitely sad to hear that. a time capsule movie that makes virtually no sense out of context, I would imagine. Um and I, it had me thinking about uh, a number of different things. One, the remake, uh, uh, which happened. Don't even, don't um, even get me started. Because I, I, I find this movie so incredibly difficult to to pull into a, a modern lens, especially when this pop cultural ideal of a valley girl is is so it's so eighties, but also it it's. It's not. It didn't last very long. So it's not. It's, it's a strange thing to have have made an entire movie around, uh, basically like a Frank Zappa in, invented uh, idea and and kind of flushed that out in a movie. But then to double down and remake it seems um, very strange because I, I just don't know how people younger than us consume a movie like this but I, I suppose that's neither here nor there um i just didn't i didn't enjoy uh a, a lot of the aspects of it and we'll get into into that but as i as i was watching it i was thinking this uh, on paper this is everything i sh- i should like this should be super fun and i it, i had a hard time enjoying it for some reason Man, I struck out again with you, buddy. We're having a tough time here on the, the back end, the <laughs> latter half of this. <laughs> yeah, but is it the latter half? I feel like it's been peppered in throughout the whole. I mean, I'm really striking out here more. Especially tit for tat lately. We've had a... I, I specifically, uh, outside of, you know, what I thought, I didn't hate it. I, I, I just don't think it's a movie that I would... Uh, I, I feel like um, I come to this routinely, which is uh, replay value and and how that affects how much I enjoyed something. And this is in the gutter of replay value. Not sure I would ever return to this for any reason. <laughs> I'm not. I don't know why I ever would, unless I was showing somebody it. Now there is one nugget in this that I absolutely f- fucking love and i will save it for my good mm. and it kept me going throughout it was the beating heart of the film <laughs> and it, it was the only thing i would return to and it was the thing i enjoyed the most about it so i'll save that mm-hmm. but to pivot into your thoughts the whole time i was watching this i thought 
what does Adam like about this? I, like I was thinking like, what, how, what could he possibly enjoy about this? I, I just could not wrap my head around it. Well, okay. So that's so a good, this, good time for you to yeah. like explain yourself. So this is another one of those movies that I categorize with Christine and Repulsion where there was a time and a place in my life where I was pretty obsessed with this movie. Would watch it over and over and over. So this is... Um, yeah, this is an uh, this is a, this movie was an obsession for me at, at one point. I have not returned to it in quite some time, so that's why I wanted to talk about it on here because felt did like it, it still cool. hold up for you? Yeah, <laughs> I can't. I just can't believe it. I just I really can't. It's absurd. <laughs> it's a I, feel I can't believe a, it. It's a feel good movie. This is our and most feel-good movie we've had yet. It's superficially uh, feel-good. It's all disagree. fluff and stuff. It's not. It's not actual feel-good shit. I gotta disagree with you on this. But yeah, I mean, now see, this is the thing. I didn't get into this movie until probably like it was pretty late in the game. So. It wasn't like a, a movie that necessarily I, I um, equate with my younger years. So, you know, like I lived through the 80s, the whole decade. I and, and part of why I think I fetishize the 80s is because, you know, because I, I was a child throughout the entire thing. Um, a lot of things that were seminal to my development as a person that's what I was getting into, you know? So like horror movies, comic books, music, art, all these things, you know, video games, whatever. We've talked about this on previous podcasts, you know, wrestling, things like that. All these things that, you know, for me, I, I have a lot of issues with how we socially construct age along with all the other things that are socially constructed. So, you know, for me, I'm one of those type of people that I never really grew out of the things that I was into as a kid. You know, it just kind of like took different shapes as things went along. And, you know, I like pretty much the same things I've liked my whole life. So I never got to a point where I grew up and out of it. So I guess that's where my heart lies with this movie is because, you know, if there's ever an era that I could go back to and live through as an adult or as like a teenager, it would be like the late seventies into the eighties. The so I have a fondness for this type of kitsch that like this movie is a part of. And I think that's, that's where it all stems from. I mean, perhaps, uh, I mean, it's hard to argue with um, someone who has a nostalgic uh, viewpoint on something. Whereas this isn't the first time I've seen this. Um, right. But it's certainly definitely the second. <laughs> I feel like I've yeah. only seen this once before uh, just because it's it's a, definitely a, a landmark. Um, it, it like transcends the film itself because the, the idea of the Valley Girl and the mall culture of the 80s mm -hmm. is kind of transcendent in this movie. And um, a lot of a lot of that 
a lot of that cultural identity is in this. So the, the movie kind of transcends itself in a lot yeah. of ways. Like um, you kind of watch it as a, as a time capsule piece of stepping right into 1983 and going to the Galleria. And like, like mm-hmm. I could see from a nostalgic uh, perspective, how that, how that hits differently for, yeah. for the two of us. Sure. Sure. Of course. So, well, aside from that, of course, um, not only is this a first in the sense that it's our first rom-com, as we talked about last episode, yeah. it's also surprisingly our first Nicolas Cage movie. Wow, I didn't even, uh, I'm not sure I, I thought about that, but you're totally right. Mm-hmm. So, we've at least uh we've at least established those things without looking it up is this this has got to be one of his first movies i'm not saying it's, it's his second. very first it's a second it's third it's his it's third his movie third where it's, is it's raising arizona and all this uh quite a like five well, years later not that much four years mm, okay three or four years so but this is the first movie where he was billed as nicholas cage no longer nick nick coppola Gotcha. But um, he had a bit part in Fast Fast Times at Ridgemont High before this. Mm, that's right. Okay. And then there was like another weird little movie that he started at first. Because as you probably know, maybe other people don't know that, you know, are less um, invested into this type of stuff. But, you know, of course, Nicolas Cage is related to Francis Ford Coppola. His father is his brother. So... He had he had all he had a lot of connections with, you know, the entertainment industry, you know, so he was just kind of a dude destined to, you know, enter into film. Like when he was 15, he that's what he pretty much established. He said he wanted to be a, an actor. And he I guess like he there's a story that I read where he, he was in the car with Francis Ford Coppola and was demanding to be put in one of his movies and Francis Ford Coppola met him with silence. <laughs> is, it, is he his uncle? Like, what's what's, what's their familiar uh, relationship? Yeah. Franc- Francis Ford Coppola is his uncle. That's right. Okay. I, I remember. I thought he was his uncle. I just couldn't remember. Okay. Yeah. So. Met him with silence because <laughs> he thought he, he was like. Suck. <laughs> yeah. Well, or he's just like, all right, shut up, kid. Whatever. You know, at that point, Francis Ford Coppola had directed Marlon Brando and you know, a litany of great actors. So he's like, okay. I'm sure down. it helped. I mean, he had the, like the silver spoon guide to getting into movies. I mean, sure. Got straight into it. I'm sure that helped a, a lot, which to me all makes Nick cage all the more interesting than he already would be without knowing that because he's such an oddball and he, you know, intentionally has sought out like oddball roles his whole career pretty much especially this new reinvention tour that he's doing (laughs) right where he's just like playing the most extreme and insane weird low budget affair movies he's like playing a caricature of himself like how would i as nick cage played nick cage in this movie yeah that being, I would say that 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 being said, that this of most of the movies that I like of Nicolas Cage, this is actually his role is the most understated. <laughs> he hadn't quite, you know, stepped into being the the, you know, the explosive, emotionally like kind of like um, 
high strung type of yeah, individual. Yeah, th- this is definitely he's still honing uh, whatever it is that his uh, acting chops would later kind of be. Right. Um, so yeah, so let's just go into the synopsis. Then we'll talk a little bit about you know numbers and critical reception. And then we'll we'll move along. So the synopsis of this movie is pretty simple. It's basically it's a it's a teenage love story based loosely on Romeo and Juliet uh, about the uh, the trope of the um, warring factions of families or groups that don't see eye to eye. And there is kind of a there's a there's a a rule where they don't intermingle. They certainly don't interbreed or mate with one another. They're they're just uh, natural enemies in certain ways or natural social enemies. Um, so you have the valley folks on the one end, and then you have the quote unquote punks. And I put it in quotes because we'll get into that more with the movie. But uh, Nick Cage is a punk named Randy, and then he falls in love with... There's a mutual uh, falling in love between him and Julie, who's a valley girl. And the the wacky hijinks ensue where, you know, they're trying to make it work as best as they can. But it's more from Julie's side, where she's getting all this pressure from her from her friends to, to ditch Randy. To go back to being with her her uh jock stud dum dum uh ex-boyfriend Tommy. So that's essentially the the synopsis of the movie. Um budget of the movie this was and this is why I I would classify this as a cultish movie aside from just its, you know, its history and what it went on to be uh, uh recognized as but it was made on a pretty small budget movie-wise, was uh, made on uh, $350,000 and definitely, definitely made that back. It ended up uh, grossing eventually $17 million. And this came out on my birthday. Oh, really? Three years before I was born. April 29th, 1983. There you go. See, so it has has significance in more than one way, Pat. (laughs) I... I, (laughs) I spit on the fact that it came out of my brain. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> critical reception has mostly been positive. I didn't have any specific pull pull quotes, but yeah, I mean, it's just always been considered a, a fun, albeit yes, shallow uh, '80s movie. Um, it's it's a pretty simple simple idea, and that's why I like it. I don't I don't think there's like a lot to read into it. I just think it's a it's a fun feel good movie that puts me in a spot um, that gives me the the warm and fuzzies. I didn't. Okay, I never knew that you wanted to feel warm and fuzzies ever. <laughs> this, this is all new to me. This is news to me that you that you yearn for this sometimes in movies. I am a complex man. <laughs> Pat Mitchell. <laughs> well, we're learning today. Boy, howdy. Just you, just, when you, you just wanted to put on like a real, like a knit sweater and kind of get cozy and watch this. I just wanted to get tubular, dude. You know, and or, when we watch this, yes. I, I ordered pizza. We had like a little pizza party and we watched it, you know, here. Where is your partner stand with this? She likes it. God, you guys. Fuck it. But I mean, yeah, I mean, whatever. I'm sure we could both pick it apart all day long, but that's 
You just you just got to let it wash over you, man. Well, this is I mean, this is certainly <laughs> something you like or you don't like it. It is what it is. It's not like it's you said, it's, it's not trying to like be anything. It's it's not. Yeah, it's cotton candy. You either that, that's the kind of candy that you like or, or you just that you don't like it. It's too saccharine. OK, well, let's uh bite into this uh, pile of cotton candy then, my friend. Uh, for what? Uh, to be on the record, I do like cotton candy. <laughs> throw and, that out there. Come on. Come on. No, man. not metaphorically. I like literally like cotton candy. So do I. It's great. It's delicious. It's one of the only reasons to want to ever go to the circus. Eat a bunch of that and then fall asleep. Don't brush my teeth. <laughs> Watch a bunch of animal cruelty and eat a bunch of cotton candy. <laughs> Dude, that's uh, my perfect Friday night. <laughs> So would you like eat uh, cotton candy while you're watching Cannibal Holocaust? Just shit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why would I? Not? I'll, I'll fucking eat a stuffed suckling pig while watching it. What do I care? <laughs> just butcher it yourself. <laughs> just hit Treat it myself. Just hit it over the head with a hammer, like te- uh, Texas like Chainsaw Massacre. TCM. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so. Let's talk about the movie with the good, the bad, and the questionable. The good. All right. So this really kind of sums up why I like this movie at the top. I think Deb Foreman and E.G. Daly are absolutely adorable. They're like the two. And this isn't like even sexualizing them, even though they do get sexualized in this movie, especially E.G. Daly as Lauren. I think they're just cute as a button, man. Like they just really they, they tickle me. I'll be uh, I'm going to be a little bit more crass, but <laughs> E.G. Daly makes the blood pool to the tip of my penis. It rushes there and like you just like straight up get a boner for her. <laughs> I love E.G. Daly. So this will go back to our uh, Streets of Fire episode, right? Yeah, she was in Streets of Fire as well. I forgot and that. Did, did we have any ad link discussion about E.G. Daly? With that? I talked about it then. And mm-hmm. but it's more prominent now because uh, titties. <laughs> I didn't know how to say that, but my God, it, it was what I was referencing earlier as the driving force of this movie. I needed nice. I needed 85 percent more E.G. Daily, not just nude E.G. Daily, just yeah. her in general. I have one of my biggest crushes in mm-hmm. in any any movie that we've talked about so far. So if I were to do like a, a Mount Crushmore, <laughs> it would be E.G. Daly, the that that like uh, Outback Steakhouse girl from uh, <laughs> Mad Max 2. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. That girl. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure who else is on Mount Crushmore, but I'll update it as we go along. Those two, if I can't think of anybody else, they probably don't deserve to be on, on the Mount, but... Yeah, she is 
she is fun. I absolutely adore her. I, I think she's freaking adorable. And I, 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 that'll be the nicest way of putting it. Um, mm-hmm. But then yeah, also just gets my boner hard. So I don't know a little bit of both. Well, and, and, you know, obviously viewing her, sexualizing her and viewing her in a sexual mm-hmm. uh, manner is complex with this movie because you get to see her her breasts through you know essentially a rape scene or you know yeah in the in the the her getting me <laughs> like a rock ooh like a rock like her getting me hard has nothing to do with the topless scene it's it's mm. like her aura yeah, I have a boner for her aura. She is just that, really is like an America, an, an American sweetheart in like in so many different ways. I think maybe maybe also because you made the association with E.G. Daly and um, uh, Bloom and Onion Lady from Rogue Warrior. Is it yeah. the side pony? The side pony is pretty cute. It's very eighties. Yeah, um, not with sure scrun- with a scrunchy. She's Side got pony. the uh it, it's no it's no surprise why she would go on to do voice work but she's she's yeah. just got she's got that voice that is just uh it, it puts you in a trance. I love mm-hmm. her. I absolutely love her and she's the my favorite part of the movie by far. It's the thing that I was kept waiting for more scenes with her and there's a lull kind of in the middle where she's not in a ton and then she comes roaring back. I love it. So I- so how do you feel about how do you feel about Deb Foreman and Julie then? I'm, I'm I, not I feel, as enthusiastic. I feel sure. nothing. My the nothing. it doesn't peg the meter. Not at all. Not one. No, not one bit. Not the, the. I think it's kind of a the vapid performance. I th- I feel like you could have maybe swapped them. Um, but that that's just me being an eg dailyist. Okay. <laughs> Okay. You know, I'm on board with you on all the EG, EG Daily uh, fanboy in, but I think Deb Foreman is great in this, and I think she's like a real cutie pie. And um, that brings me to talk about that I think that her and Nick Cage have a really good chemistry in this movie, and there's a variety of reasons for that, which we can talk about later. But I think that they work well together, and I think that they come off as um, what would be a realistic pairing in this movie and i guess this is where it gets to the heart of why i like this movie is not so much anymore but i was definitely a sucker for these kind of uh unlikely kind of uh love story type of things at one point and this idea of you know idealizing a a person that you could find in your life that would be you know complementary to you i don't want to use a fucking trite term like soulmate but you know it's like there's there's a yearning that people have for finding that someone that you know like really like compliments you and you know it there's a magic to it and i think that this movie in a lot of ways captures that to me is like that idea of that magic uh, especially in when you're young and if you have like a crush or you know a first love or whatever or a high school sweetheart you know there's there is a certain magic to that time now not everybody experiences that i did personally like i had a you know a steady gal in high school that i was pretty fond of and 
I don't know. I feel like this movie in certain ways, it, it, it harkens to that sort of that idea. That that's where it ticks your your nostalgia meter goes off. For yeah, sure. And and just the idea also just again, like, you know, hanging out, hanging out with your buds, hanging out at the mall. I used to hang out at the mall, have a good time at the mall, you know, and and, and just the uh just the uh, the horror show of high school and, and trying to escape like the doldrums of day to day life and making your own adventures. And, you know, it gets into that where, you know, Randy and Fred are considered dangerous. They're the bad boys. So, you know, when they steal the girls from the party and they take them to what they consider like the real world, you know, like this is reality. Like, that's fun to me, like the idea of going out on a summer night top downs on the car you know you're you're just like cruising the town going to clubs with your gals there's a lot of again i feel like there's a lot of magic to it you know that it you know it 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 takes me back to a certain time in my life as well you know and i'm not like a jaded old fart like i i still (laughs) live pretty like like i live my life as best as i can without any like constraints you know other than just having to survive and so i don't like i don't look at it as like it's not like a fucking glory days bruce springsteen sort of glory shit days. Like, yeah we got two songs so far we got like a rock which is what eg daily makes me feel like and mm-hmm. glory days which and is what makes this, this movie makes you feel like sure but again that's what i'm saying for me or it, I it's, try to, it's not what it makes you feel like. It's like that's that's an example yeah. of what you were trying to say. That not what you're well, trying to say. What what it does is it definitely it has a nostalgia factor to it. But I also don't I don't necessarily yearn for what is considered a better time in my life. You know, I've never had that feeling overall. Like I always continually try to make my life, my day to day existence, enjoyable and and fulfilling. So. It's not like it ever reached a point where like I'm like, oh, got to live, got to get to the real world, got to be an adult, got to get the real job, got to get the, you know, the house. I'll, I never lived like that. So it has it, it, it hits me differently. It hits me in a way that, you know, I guess it doesn't make me like. It's not that you want to go back then. You know, you, it's not like you want to live in the past but you it it is nice to have a a tv show or a movie uh kind of transport you back to a time where when you were a certain age and and if they can make it feel like tangible then that's Mm -hmm. that's a movie that is is doing a really good job of kind of of portraying an honest interpretation of of how you felt when you were that age Yeah. And that's really it. That's really what it comes down to. So I guess that's why I feel, I feel differently, you know, and I, I do, I do get those warm, warm fuzzies sometimes. I love, I mean, I love it. I I like that. You can talk about getting the warm fuzzies. We were, we've really had a, you're on, you're like laid out on the couch. We've had a breakthrough moment here today in our therapy (laughs) session. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> wow i really am, i am a real boy I'm a that'll real be five hundred dollars <laughs> <laughs> all right get out i got my next client um what i also want to say is i really like also genuinely like 
Julie's parents as being the weirdo kind of uh, oh former hippies. What? I'm no, out. I'm no. out on them. Yeah. You're out on that. Yeah. I can't wait to get to the trivia about those particular actor uh, actors because I, I can't don't know wait how much to hear you... it. No, I didn't. I don't ever do any research on your episodes. Oh, dude. Uh, see, okay. So I had this thought. I did think I was like, I don't know how Pat's going to feel about this. I definitely, it was another one where I was like, he could go either way. So, but this is the one thing that I will take, uh, that I think will be the takeaway from this episode is there's a lot of really fun trivia for this and some stuff that's going to blow your mind. Mm. So I can't wait to get to that part. Put it that way. But I really do. I do like her parents a lot. I think they're funny. Um, I like the dad. I like the idea of like, again, the fact that they're like the chill laid back kind of hippie parents. And they just, and even though Julie is, you know, in her teen years, fundamentally different than they are, they're cool with that. Like, cause I guess, again, this where it mirrors kind of how I feel, you know, I would be in certain ways or how I am is if I was ever a parent and I'm sure you're like this too. I mean, obviously your kid, well, you technically have more than one kid, but your biological child that you have with your partner is very young. But I feel like you'd be a pretty chill parent, right? You know? Yeah, I wouldn't be this dude, but yeah. You wouldn't, you, you wouldn't be this chill? chill, or you, No. You just wouldn't I, be the hippie. I had a, a real problem connected with that guy. I, I, <laughs> I, it's so funny how diametrically, like I literally put... Well, I'll save it for the bad, but I put Julie's parents like specifically in the bad. <laughs> no, I like them a lot because, yeah, that's how I would probably be with my kid. You know, I would try to, you know, be uh, a source of wisdom and solace for my child. But I would basically let it ride, man. I'd be like, you know, you are also in many ways the the master of your own destiny. So you do what you think is best for you. And I'm just here for you to, you know, get advice from and financial stability or whatever, you know? Well, that's certainly so, the, the blueprint to, you know, not raising sociopaths. It's like <laughs> other people's agendas in this world seem to be. Like, obviously, I can't speak to it. You know, you can. But I feel like, yes, being a parent is a very complicated, complicated occupation in many ways. And there's a very fine line that you have to ride where, you know, you need to be a guiding, a guide, you know, a guiding light or a guidepost for, you know, a person you're raising. But you can't be too overbearing and too dictatorial and autocratic. Because, you know, one false move and it could just all go off the rails. And, you know, aside from other reasons, that's a big reason why I haven't particularly wanted to become a parent because I don't want to I don't want to be responsible for another being's destiny in that way. <laughs> it's a lot. It's yeah. a it's, it, it's really heavy to think of it like that. Yeah. And that's why I feel most parents are not suitable because they themselves have not learned, you know, their own life lessons and had their own adventures and, you know, uh, quantifying experiences that they could utilize to pass on to a different person. So, 
Well, there we go. We just got into our uh, parenting psychoanalysis part of the show. This is a real, a real therapy session today. <laughs> We're getting a lot. It here. organically uh, kind of went there. Well, okay, so. I guess moving along then, another thing that I really like about this movie, this is a, a kind of central scene for me that also, I guess, pings certain uh, parts in my, my brain that it's, I associate with the past is, to me, like, I could really probably, like, do a deep dive on the interplay between Skip and Beth. Um, and that whole kind of mini drama that's unfolding within the movie, the, 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 uh, the older woman trying to seduce the teenage kid that also happens to be, uh, her daughter's boyfriend. Yeah. What in the fuck is going on? <laughs> what is going on? <laughs> the eighties had this, uh, like obsession with. I think like the MILF was born in, in the 80s. Like this idea that a pool boy could fuck the uh, the lady of the house. Um, mm. It seems very 80s to have that like fetishized and, and kind of uh, put to screen and sure. it, it be plausible. But yeah, uh, that, I actually had that in my good um, in terms of like Mrs. Brent is – impossibly thirsty she's in yeah. insatiable <laughs> yeah it was i and also like she doesn't look that much older than yeah. uh, her daughter so it's it, it was jarring because i was like wait is she the mom like at multiple times i was like i kept asking like is she the mom what the hell is going on yeah and that's obviously uh a thing between julie and her mom as well my partner actually brought that up. She's like, there's no way that that's her mom. She, you know, the, the daughter looks older than her. Um, so they you, look yes, like you sisters. have yeah. they look like sisters. You have that a lot, of course, in clearly in the eighties because older actors and actresses were consistently cast for younger roles. Um, but also in these sort of scenarios, you have, you know, situations where the, children don't look much younger than the parents. I think with the Beth and Susie scenario, though, it, it works to its advantage because clearly you have a situation here where the mom is in competition and she even states that basically she states that she's in competition with her daughter. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm trying to save most. I, I have a list of of good. Um, this is it. It. I'm trying to save my thoughts for the bad. But yeah, the the, the parenting portrayal in this is so <laughs> bizarre. Like between <laughs> we disagree about Julie's parents, but yeah, like she is just thirsty for some teenagers. Yeah, but that was different back then. Like. Um, like it, it took me aback a little bit to to hear you say like E.G. Daly's scene in this is like a quasi rape scene because I I it didn't dawn on me like that but I think certainly through today's lens there's there's mm -hmm. just things like uh, you wouldn't get away with like Mrs. Brent would be a predator <laughs> yeah and that E.G. Daly scene sure but like in the scope of the the innocence of this movie. 
I saw the EG Daily sex scene as like two individuals that were like, you know, mutually agreeing to have sex at a party, and then EG Daily kind of is not into it. But she it, it seemed more innocent than than that. But sure. I, I don't disagree with you in terms of like. That's why I, I think it's hard to uh, to update this movie. I mean, you have to update it and make it like PG thirteen, basically, because all of the reasons why this is a R rated movie are very 80s and it was in and seen as innocent back then for sure yeah and that's where i don't know much about the remake i don't need to but i know that's where it falls flat because you're right they probably had to really they really had to sanitize a lot of the aspects of this movie that do make it interesting a lot of the character dynamics to make it you know updated for today um so i don't i don't buy it and also like you said the, the valley girl is a relic of the past there's there's no unless somehow this movie the the remake also tries to um somehow replicate the 80s but through you know a contemporary that's lens. what I was curious about. And I don't want to talk about the remake because neither one of us has seen it. And I also don't give a fuck. But like, yeah, no, I think they're, I think it's set in the 80s. That's what I'm so I was so curious about, because this idea of a valley girl is something that only like our generation of people, anyone younger than us would have no idea what the fuck we're talking about. It's it's so minute of a cultural experience and um yeah, it seems so strange of all the movies that this would be the one that you would think would be untouchable. But it, it goes to prove that no movie, I suppose, is untouchable in Hollywood. Yeah, because even by the time that I was entering middle and high school, the uh, the notion of a valley girl that had a specific dialect was on its <laughs> way out, had been well on its way out. Nobody. Yeah, it was so, it was so <laughs> short lived. It didn't even. It wasn't even like a thing of the entire eighties. It was like a mid eighties thing, right? And it just went away. Like it just died. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, is E.G. Daly's performance in this as Lauren? It like was a Valley Girl seen as a. Uh, promiscuous and like something like a girl that you would want to get with because they are seen as more promiscuous. Like, I feel like they tried to do, they tried to show the, the rainbow of, of what the Valley girl can be. Everything from like Lauren on one end, uh, to Julie on the other. Yeah. I mean, I, that that is that is interesting that you point that out. the The thing is, though, Lauren herself isn't a valley girl, um, so I'll, I'll get into that later. But as far as the other three go, I think it's just a general like that again as an '80s thing, an '80s teen thing where. Yes, they were sexualized. I don't know how much that they were more promiscuous than you know, any other teen, but I think that's just inherent in the idea of, cause like the Valley is essentially a suburb, you know, of LA. It's like a suburb within the city. So it's just this idea of the, 
kind of sheltered teen wanting to strike out on their own and rebel and 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 do their own thing. There's in the 80s particularly there is just always going to be saturated this notion of teen promiscuity. It just goes with the, you know, the 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 viewing of the culture of the time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So all teens were by by default promiscuous then. <laughs> well, I I didn't mean to derail the good. You're saying you're saying things that I still have follow up questions to, but I'd rather just get back on track. Like the Lord sure. not being a valley girl is super confusing to me because I didn't know it was like, well, you have to live here and just be. I thought it was like a they talk like this and they go to the mall and they look like this and they wear fluorescent like fucking colors and shit. Like I thought it was just a way of speaking and the. Yeah, it's a way, a way of presenting of yourself and a way of and a way of life. There was, there was, there was a. It wasn't just the dialect itself. The dialect was just a representation of other aspects of the culture. Hmm. Clearly. Okay. Anyways, so yeah, um, so I actually really do also like the Plimsolls cameo. I think the Plimsolls like. I I know it, it kind of comes off a certain way as being. A little, um, I guess, false, but I do like them being in that movie and being uh, the house band. I will say something about th- uh, this, though, as far as this is kind of getting into the bad a little bit. It is funny, though, that this movie is about punks, but there is literally no punk in it. <laughs> it, it might be my biggest gripe. Um, yeah. But yeah, for sure. But yeah, I like the Plimsoll's appearance in it, and I like the I like the club scenes too. Um, again, that just harkens back to this, you know, feeling and nostalgia of, of being out on the town during the summer with your buds and going out and seeing the sights and things like that. Um, I think the way you feel about the Plimsolls is is I love the Josie Cotton stuff. I've always loved yes her. Um, it, the most punk aspects of this movie are nothing like none of the characters but like Josie Cotton in like a Cindy Lauper kind of way is like yeah. she's punk in the way Cindy Lauper would be punk and that's right. where the movie miss, misses the mark with the characters themselves <laughs> like yeah. but I love yeah I I liked the house band the Plimsolls love Josie Cotton a whole love bunch. Josie Cotton I love the Josie Cotton parts as well the, and while we're super- in this while we're in this general arena the soundtrack is a reminder that pop music peaked in the 80s. There will never be another decade like it. And it is the greatest musical decade of all time in terms of just like pop music, one hit wonders, eclectic yeah. music. Like everything was considered pop music, like every right. new wave, dark wave shit, super poppy shit, rock and like everything was was considered you know, up up for grabs back then. Yeah. God damn. Yeah. Culture Club, Bananarama, The Jam. There's like fucking Clash songs in here. It, like it is. It was a reminder that, OK, the 80s fuck like in terms of music and nothing will ever, ever, ever even come close. It's just so good from t- from top to bottom. So good musically. Yeah. I agree because I feel like that was the tail end of the what would be considered obviously 
the it was or at least on the downward the top of the downward slope of the golden era of rock music in general but also this idea and notion that you know say what you will about the the record label industry and and how much they ripped off artists and how nefarious they were but there definitely was a thing where record label execs of a different time were more willing to take a chance on weirdo things and you know and that's i feel exemplified in what you were talking about where they would just sign whoever you know and of of all different stripes and see what worked essentially and because there was this ability to push it more because there was so much limited more limited uh media channels and things like that with more money behind pushing things into those media channels it was a lot easier to get those bands into the forefront and things like that. Whereas now it's like everything's all happening at once and, you know, things just get all mashed together and and mixed up and, and watered down. So things become more, I guess, uh, they become more factionalized. So, you know, everybody is specifically into their own little niche of things. And there will never be a time where I feel like there will be like a true rock star like at there was in the past, things like that. So yeah, I agree with you totally. It's hard to fathom that, that it would ever get like, you know, obviously I don't want to ever say never say never, but yeah, it seems like that, that conceptually that would be impossible to have like a Michael Jackson ever again. Yeah. Yeah. Like who's the most, who's the most popular singer songwriter and or just artist in general today i don't even fucking know beyonce (laughs) beyonce adele like i'm a huge swifty i'm a big taylor swift fan i love pop music i love certain i love pop music in general um Mm. and there's certain modern day pop artists who i i love a lot but like even someone like a, a taylor swift or whatever is still culturally handcuffed in terms of their reach. She couldn't, she couldn't go to fucking Uganda and people would lose <laughs> their goddamn minds. <laughs> it's true. It really is. It's, it's, it's interesting to note how things have changed with, with more access to things. It's made the impact less apparent. Yeah. Anyway, I agree with you though. It, it's impossible. I don't think we'll ever get there again. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to talk about this too because this is going back to our girl E.G. Daily. I really actually like <laughs> I'm that, all ears. that slumber party scene. Oh my the way it god! Off, where they're <laughs> all dancing together. Uh, the height of of just innocent, uh, uh, like fucking pinch my cheeks adorableness. I love it. <laughs> I absolutely like a rock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really great how it was choreographed and you know how it all syncs up with the music and it was a very 80s montage, like a dress up montage for sure. Yeah, and it's real quick. It just it comes like that and you're also, like, Also oh. Ichi Daily hadn't been on the screen for a while, so I was like starting to fade and then it was like, Oh, <laughs> Ichi Daily like in a dress up montage. I was like Boy, 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 hold you back in. I feel like I'm being a real Beavis and Butthead about this episode. I hope I don't get canceled. Yeah. Shit. I mean, speaking of teenage kids, you're you're frothing at the mouth about this lady like a teenager. How old so is like EG Daily in this movie? I will feel <laughs> really bad if it is <laughs> something. She was like 22. It's okay. Yeah. Right. Like she had to be. Okay. But well, I was gonna say, but you know, I will give this as another good. Um, 
aside from the weird, like, you know, the weird comparisons with the parents being younger and things like that, the, the teenage cast in this, by and large, they're all pretty young. Nick Cage was still a teenager. Um, the rest of them, they're all like in their early 20s. They come off, I feel, as as passable teenagers. The guy who played Tommy was like 30. So, <laughs> but the rest of them, they were all, you know, barely, you know, in their 20s, if not teenagers still. You're dead on about E.G. Daly. Um, she's exact. Well, she was 23 when the movie was released. Um, mm. Side note, E.G. Daly thing record scratch she was in the devil's rejects i I think that may have just yeah. not been something that i even registered uh, yeah. wow that's weird i know okay. but what the hell is she in that movie do you even remember i can't remember it's been so long since i've seen it but i'll yeah. say i i've got some zombie we need to have like a, a zombie corner again uh an rz corner i'll save it this is not the time but we have things yeah. to discuss it's funny that um he gets brought up too because i was having a discussion about this movie with um do you know veronica yes yeah 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 okay so i was we like talking like about the archie comics <laughs> no <laughs> um i was having a discussion with her um and she loves this movie too we have a, a mutual affection for this movie um that we both would bounce off of each other um for a while and uh she told me she's she's actually getting a uh, Valley Girl uh, tattoo um, soon, but um, somehow, like, yeah, our conversation also segued into talking about Rob Zombie and how much we fucking hate Rob Zombie and how I was like, but I will give the exception to Devil's Rejects because I do really like that movie a lot. But anyways, Wait, so, so you're trying yeah. to have the zombie corner now or later? No, that's all. I just want I'm but just you, saying I said, let's save it. And you're like, well, let me tell you a Rob Zombie story. We're already <laughs> in the corner. Nope, that's oh, it. All right, I'm pulling it. us back out. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> um, OK, so I'll, I'll give it another couple goods and then we'll, you know, we'll try and wrap it up. Um, I actually also really like the scenes where uh, Randy is incognito and he keeps fucking with Tommy. They're Wait, very what, goofy. what scene? What are you talking about? There's a scene. So after Julia and Randy break up, Randy is stalking her, which is another like problematic thing that, you know, in the context of this movie is like, oh, that's fun. But he's literally stalking her everywhere. But where he goes incognito. At, no, at the I movie love theater. it. I love it. Where he's just like working everywhere. Where, my biggest question is that's a dedicated thing to like, like, how did he like he just pushed the the ticket taker out of the fucking way was like right. i'm taking just, tickets now dickhead he pulled an a team where he just knocks him out and takes his 80s was big on knocking people out and then having them like tied up in their underwear in like a broom closet <laughs> right <laughs> but yeah so that's great anyway no, no, so i did i very much enjoy, so enjoyed those that that it, that's really silly 80s stuff that i i can get into yeah, that was another fun montage, the uh, Randy Incognito montage. All right, so did you have any other goods? Otherwise, this I don't know off. if you realize this. Um, this is the fifth movie in a row with boobs. There's no yeah. other way for me to say that other than to have said it like that. Did you yeah. know that it was the, our, this is our fifth movie in a row? I thought it was three, and then I looked, and it is our fifth. 
So let's see. We had before this, we had um, Terrifier, which, yes, boobs. Obviously. Forbidden Zone, boobs. Mermaid in a Manhole, boobs. Predator 2, boobs. Boobs, you're right. We just went on a roll. The booby, the, the booby patrol here. <laughs> <laughs> Coming the la- on through the lamest, the lamest, the lamest group of dudes ever. Here we come. We're wearing our incel hats and we're on booby patrol. <laughs> well, there's a fun little bit of trivia relating to that also, which we'll get into later. But anyways, yes, there are boobs in here. Sorry, I didn't mean that. That's such a lame good. I just didn't know if you knew that. And um, <laughs> with that, I think I, I mean. Outside of the things I disagreed with you on, I agreed with everything else that we added. E.G. Daily is at the very top, and um, the soundtrack is probably in a close second. And uh, those are the two aspects that I greatly enjoyed the most. Good. Well, at least you took something out of it. I'm glad that at least you got the the joy of getting to witness E.G. Daily in her youthful jubilant bouncy prime oh well yeah she's on mount crushmore for sure well then like i said off the top i don't know where i land with this i think i don't like it um and the more we talk about it there's certainly aspects that i i don't like um but like i said there's also some that i i I find endlessly endearing eg daily is a is a fucking shooting star of a a, just I, i love her endlessly yeah, she really is. She's a sweetheart. So, bads, come on, man. Give it to me. Well, I think, what, like you've already said, this mm-hmm. is like one of the lamest portrayals of, quote-unquote, punk, maybe in all of cinema. Um, it's awful. It's like Disney Channel punk, like Miley Cyrus punk. I, I In a time where you have, like, Repo Man and, like, Penelope Spheris' stuff, like Suburbia... Mm-hmm. Um, or even something as ridiculous as like uh, Return of the Living Dead, like where yeah. it's like so such a caricature of of punk. It just it misses the mark, and it 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 when you're gonna miss the mark on that. Now I'm disconnected from like the guy from the wrong side of the tracks. Like they are basically in the same group, and they don't even know it. Like he's he's yeah. not like the bad boy. Um. It's crazy. He like he has like I don't want to step on our our quote dick, but like the quote where he's like, "This is the real world. It's not fresh and clean like a television show." Julie, like it's like, oh my god, that is so embarrassing. It's so know. weak, and it's it's like it's Hollywood. Come on, man. I, I get that. There's parts of L.A. that are fucking gritty and raw and dangerous and scary. I lived there briefly. I know how it is. But Hollywood, not it, my man. <laughs> that yeah, is not it. It's very strange. And who's what's his buddy's name? Fred. Yeah, Fred just having like like tie-dye pink bangs like and then, and like what's so what's the most shocking is that they show up and everyone in that in that other group in Julie's group at the party especially is like these two these two riffraff got to go. It's like <laughs> literally aren't doing anything and they're not it's not like imagine yeah. if the dudes the the group of punks from like return of the living dead showed up at that party like <laughs> like that one dude that has the chain going from his nose to his ear or whatever like yeah, that guy yeah. would have like kicked through a table and like pissed in the <laughs> onion dip 
and like <laughs> like they'd be scared to death to kick them out they'd be like well we can't kick these guys out because they would whoop our fucking ass yeah, they'll kill us right Lin- yeah and Linnea Quigley is like fucking strip- <laughs> stripping and fucking grinding on some some schlub in the corner yeah I would like to see that um, genre mashup, though, if somehow we could remake this movie, but in the context of the 80s, not like the dumb remake of of contemporary remake, but then put those punks in there or, yeah, even like the cast of, of Repo Man or whatever. If we could have gotten. See, that's the thing. So. I did want to comment about this is our second female director that we've had a uh, discussion about. Uh, yeah, I, I meant Bigelow. to mention that, too, in our in our good, actually. Yeah, I, that, I noticed that, is, that. That is good. But now now that we talk about it more, wouldn't this have been so much better if Penelope Spheris was the uh, d- the director of this? She would have really done this kind of movie justice, I feel like. She is a fucking juggernaut. Yeah. Outside of like Catherine Bigelow. um, she is up there in terms of my favorite, just just for her work alone on the decline of Western civilization. Like just mm-hmm. like she she had the pull, she had the finger on the pulse of of what was going on, especially in 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 the punk subculture in the eighties. Mm-hmm. I, I I have no doubt that she would have knocked it out of the park, and or at least like updated Nick Cage and and Old Boy to be somewhat more menacing. Yeah. But does that take it out of the point of this movie? If you have them be like unequivocal dickheads, she never leaves Tommy for Randy. If Randy is like the punkest of the of the punks, you don't get she doesn't switch teams because he would be it, it wouldn't be some someone you you would fall for or like an Emilio Estevez in Repo Man. Like, uh, yeah, I'm not sure you fall for a total dickhead. Or yeah, like any <laughs> any of those guys from Return of the Living Dead, like Spider or is his name like Death or whatever? <laughs> trash. It's trash. Trash. Yeah. Trash. Like, trash isn't winning uh Julie over. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in theory, obviously, yes, but that would also make it more interesting if the the, the polar extremes were were exaggerated that much more and they somehow did come together. You know, then it would be even more of like a weird, like odd couple sort of scenario. And, you know, there I think it would it would lend itself to having even more wacky hijinks and weirdness. So, yes and no. There's a spectrum there, though. Like, so they went to they went like like from Avril Lavigne to Gigi Allen. We're like all the way (laughs) on Like we're this is like Avril Lavigne. I'm not saying. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, Gigi Allen showed up. Uh, Julie isn't wooed, <laughs> but you can have some, somewhere in the middle there. <laughs> Shits on the sushi, <laughs> breaks a beer bottle over Tommy's head. He choked fucks Tommy for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's a flaccid yeah. penis in the bean dip. <laughs> but that's the thing too, and I talk about this continually with Charlotte when we watch movies from the '80s. Where. How is it as a as a writer or director or producer, whatever, of a movie, are you not able to land these characters better with like if you're trying to represent punks or metalheads or gang members, you're literally in the epicenter of where all these exist. You can go up the street 
and do better research to to convey your idea to your costume designer and and people like that. That's yeah, why I the, just don't these get punks it, you know? live in the same un- <laughs> these punks live in the same universe as the subway gang from Predator Two. Like it's <laughs> exactly. all the same. Like Broadway, like Lin Manuel <laughs> Miranda presents. Punk. It's like shit. This sucks my ass. This is awful. I don't want like like tap dance punk. This sucks. Yeah, yeah. They're really off. Again, it's a it's a movie about punks with zero punk. It's like <laughs> there's a Mr. Show uh, sketch where it's a Broadway musical about rap that features no rap. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly, that's exactly where we're at. And so that took me out of it more so than, than you, I suppose, you, you know, yeah. although we are on the same page, it's just something sure. that probably didn't, didn't take you out of it as much. So, I mean, although we both agree on it, it probably just affected me more in terms of just like, I couldn't, I couldn't relate to them kind of getting together because they weren't, enough Romeo and Juliet in terms of like being like diametrically opposed culturally. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, you know, Randy is, is clearly, and this is a new wave centric movie. He's a new wave dude. Yeah. So the for time, sure. You know, people could, it's like if you took any normie suburban asshole and said, you know, pick out the punk, they would pick out anybody from like a lineup of, you know, just new wave or, you know, people that were punk adjacent be like, that's a punk. So yeah, it's just, it's just lazy. It's just fucking lazy character development and costume design and et cetera, et cetera. So yes. And speaking of the Romeo and Juliet stuff, the whole modern day Romeo and Juliet gimmick is just so played out. And at this point, I, I suppose we were still in 1983, we were still in for like at least 10 more <laughs> modern yeah. day Romeo and Juliet interpretations. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But regardless of the decade, I just th- that that whole like modern day stylization is just like, again, like played out. The only the only pass I will give anything is Tromeo and Juliet, which I f- still love. I think it's because it's so completely farcical that I, I feel like it still hits. But any yeah. any sort of honest interpretation of of Romeo and Juliet is is like, God damn, can we pull from any other source material or not not be like, we're going to try to be like Romeo and Juliet. You could tell the story without having that be a through line. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but again, I feel like that is something that you can criticize more because we are – it has been saturated up to this point. Yeah, so it from it, the it's, it's – exactly. No, it, it yeah. is a – in retrospect, boy, am I over that as a thing. And I certainly <laughs> don't want anything post-2021. My God. I was over it before it even began. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I was uh-huh. over it, so it's hard to revisit a movie and then hold it against it because it you know, in '83. But yeah, that that's probably not fair to the to the yeah. film. Um, not nearly enough. E.G. Daily. I needed like eighty three percent more E.G.D. in this, <laughs> but you know, I suppose that's. It is what it is. Or maybe uh, she left me wanting more so that it's maybe it's the perfect amount of EGD. What I could go back is I could go back and edit this whole movie and just superimpose EG Daly's face on all the ladies in it and then give it to you. There we go. (laughs) There's there's the cure for my ED. My ED needs more EGD. And then 
so there's numerous scenes where you see boobs of other ladies. So you get to see E.G. Daly with different sets of boobs, too. And you get great. Variety. Like a serial killer ransom note. We cut off her head and just paste it on all the <laughs> all the other uh, topless torsos in the movie. <laughs> so I can masturbate yeah. like a sociopath. <laughs> Um, I will say this is a bad, and this is not like a bad in terms of the actual, the, the, the f- fibers and tissues of the movie, but, you know, Tommy is an utter douche. Also, I would say, let me, ex- let, let me extrapolate that more. Also, Julie's friends are bad. Her friends are bad, with the exception of Lauren. Lauren gets an exception, but like all of her friends are just shitty friends. How so? <laughs> Because obviously they're very superficial and they're trying to convince her to dump a guy on like the most baseless premise that just just because it basically embarrasses them. Yeah, I just wanted to hear you flush it out. Yeah, Yeah, I I agree. But I also think it's very honest of what teenage girls are probably like. Totally. It is. But yes, her 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 uh, indigenous friend group is bad. <laughs> yeah, it, it is a uh, echo chamber of <laughs> of mayo. It's it is a the most whitewashed echo chamber I've ever seen. Yeah. Well, uh, what other badge you got? Yeah. So going back around to the parents in this movie, what I just what is with the parents in this movie? Like when you were describing <laughs> them, that that I. The reasons why you like Julie's dad is the reasons why I like why I did did not like him. Like I just the bohemian like brain dead dad thing. <laughs> I just couldn't get. <laughs> I just couldn't get behind. Um, he seems uncomfortably interested in his daughter's love life. There's like a line between showing interest in in what your daughter, uh, you know, is up to or you know currently engaged in and but he just seems like has like a vested interest in who she's fucking yeah but that's also that is a thing that dads do and i feel like he's at least more more relaxed about it than a lot of fathers would be at least i don't know about how i don't know how dad i don't know how you dads do it these days but dads of of a of a time past especially at that time you know it's 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 written into the code. Well, you got to make sure that, you know, you basically your, your daughter doesn't hang out with any guys or else someone let them have it. You know, yeah, that end of the spectrum sucks, too. Like the shotgun dad. <laughs> this this also <laughs> reminded me when I was doing my Tom Cruise uh, marathon. The very, very first movie that he was ever in was this uh, another like Romeo and Juliet interpretation called mm-hmm. Endless Love. And maybe that's where mm-hmm. I'm. I there's lots of connections between these two movies. Um, the the main girl, it, Brooke Shields, is character in it. Um, her parents are also like these these burnt out bohemian like laid back hippies. Um, so it's it's just very strange. I the the, the two movies had very similar um, vibes in it and uh i think that might be part of the reason because i hated endless love and so maybe i'm projecting <laughs> but i do feel like julie's dad it it, it comes close to maybe like <laughs> this is gonna be a, a way out there comparison but like franken and, and um 
Christie in like Hellraiser, like come to daddy. Like it's no <laughs> way. Come on. I'm going to put my thumb in your mouth. Come to daddy. Drop the come to daddy Hellraiser clip here. <laughs> you were reaching on that one, buddy. But still, I went too far. Enjoyable nonetheless, but I strongly disagree. But anyways. <laughs> All right. Anything else? I do love Hellraiser. Remember? Or wait, no, I hate it. I hate Hellraiser. I forgot. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yes. Yes. Pat. Pat. Yes. How dare you hate that movie so much? I don't even want to be on the mic as having said that. It's just how much I love the first two Hellraisers. Whatever. Okay. We can move on. Okay. So any more bads? The ending. I, I thought the ending could shove it. I mean, but whatever. Oh, that does bring me to this that, you know, as much as I do like Julie in this movie and I do think she's a sweetheart, um, she is obviously easily manipulated and I feel like, yeah, she's pretty shitty to, I mean, she's shitty to both Tommy and Randy, like by kind of being, you know, flip floppy about it and just, you know, whatever and not being able to think for herself. But since I think Tommy's a douche, I don't really care. But yeah, like when she is shitty to Randy just to be, uh, you know, on the defensive there when he comes to her house and. You know, and she's basically like, you know, like crying and making a big to do about it. Come on, calm down, girl. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Oh, no. But then, you know, that's the thing. So she dumps Randy and then goes back with Tommy and then gets Tommy all, you know, thinking he's numero uno again. And then. That just leads to Tommy getting the shit beat out of him, and then she runs off with Randy. It's just like, girl, you are fucking up. Did the ending uh, let leave you feeling fulfilled, like when they run away together, and it's just like a uh, montage of happiness to credits? Because it, it left yeah. me feeling real hollow. No, I liked it just fine. Dear God. Okay. <laughs> if you're going to do the like 80s interpretation of Romeo and Juliet, then just kill Julie and Randy then. If you want to be honest, that shit, hell, kill Tommy too. Yeah, that. Yeah, let's have a real like Montagues and Capulet sort of showdown where you Tommy know, gets pissed, storms <laughs> out of out of the gym, and plays a game of chicken with Julie and Randy, and they just <laughs> both cars explode. Cut to a George Thorogood song to credits. <laughs> See, we we have come up with so many better remake ideas for this movie than whoever the, the was the fuck nut that that actually made the remake. Come on, if any of you are listening, any producers out there are listening, come on, throw us an advance. We will write up a Valley Girl remake script that will knock your fucking It'll pants, blow your mind. Asshole. Yeah, it will straight like your pants will fucking just get sucked into your urethra and just blown out your ass. Yeah. So if you're looking for that, then give us money. (laughs) (laughs) Producers are listening. Hmm, I've always wanted a pair of trousers to be just (laughs) vacuumed through my piss hole and shot out the back of my prolapsing my ass. Where do I? Do you just want me to be a blank check then? (laughs) Give me give me the line. Give me the pen. 
I'm signing. <laughs> All right. Questions. Yes. Uh, of which I had many. Um, good. Cause I didn't really have any. <laughs> oh, good. Okay. Um, I wondered like, who was the demographic for this movie? Cause most teenagers, teenagers wouldn't have been able to see it given its R rating, I guess, depending on their age. And yet that it was also specifically aimed at teenagers. Like who the fuck else would have enjoyed this at the time? It seems like a strange, it's a hard movie to, to sell. It, I, I'm, it did well. I just, like, who the hell went to see it? Yeah, that is funny. And when we get into the trivia and I talk about some, a certain facet of this movie, a decision that was made, it didn't even think to cross, you know, it didn't cross my mind that that aspect is kind of in contradiction of one another. That it's aimed at teenagers, but teenagers technically couldn't watch it. I mean, obviously, plenty of teenagers, if they heard like, oh, this has boobs in it, they would find a way they saw it after it yeah i'm sure they right. did but, <laughs> but yeah you're also undercutting your main demographic that's why horror movies um you know the safe play is a p is is to keep it pg-13 because horror movies are almost specifically geared towards 13 14 15 16 like uh teenagers taking kid like other girl like taking other teenagers on dates that's like a fucking <laughs> huge thing so that's why a lot of horror movies are skewed that way but yeah that's true but i mean i guess you're just shooting for that window of 18 to 20 which is we're just we're know. just like our demographic our age demographic although we are uh catered to in almost every other facts like it like the white male age uh you know 27 to fucking 50 Everything is is catered to us in advertising and TV and movies and music. But there the main demographic for for movies to make money is teenagers. So seems strange. Yeah, but I and I don't know so much with this movie because this would have just been at the beginning of, you know, home, the home movie boom. Yeah, A lot of you're right. The you know, the slasher and horror movie market and, and, and exploitation market, you know, also probably banked on the back end making money as well. But True. I mean, again, whatever, teenagers will sneak into movies if, if they want to. You know, I, That's right. I saw plenty of R-rated movies when I was a teenager in the theater. So anyways, but yes, good point, my friend. One ticket for Finding Nemo. <laughs> that's how you Going do that's to, how you see every movie <laughs> yeah that's exactly how you do it it's as simple as that tommy i don't know i need to maybe find a reddit thread about this this has got to be a. this has got to be a question that somebody else has come up like as a um a subtext of the movie he just comes off as so painfully like closeted and afraid of his own homosexuality <laughs> that it's hard to believe that he's even in the running for Julie's attention. Like he just must be super competitive because physically he can't feel There's no way he feels any attraction. And then if that weren't any more painfully obvious, I think it's absolutely hilarious that they play the specifically Johnny, are you queer when they're fucking dancing at the, at the fucking Brahm or whatever, like, it it just felt very like, yep, this guy like Nightmare on Elm Street 2 is 
super gay. I just, he just, he, every, every aspect of the movie, every time he shows up on screen, I'm like, God, this guy's like angry about being gay. You know, I honestly didn't pick up that as much as you did, but it's funny that you did pick up that and that you did um, relate the possible subtext of them playing Johnny. Are you queer? while these two dudes are fighting and rolling around and, you know, uh, <laughs> the implications of the homoerotic implications there. That's funny, I was though. thinking I like of it well before that. And then when that happens, it's like, all right. Are we just saying at this point, <laughs> maybe, maybe it's total coincidence. I mean, they, they swear the producer and director of Nightmare on Elm Street too swear up and down that it was completely unintentional, which seems nuts. We should just do that movie at some point. Yeah, no, I would totally do that. Well, you know, we have talked about what we're going to do later. <laughs> that possibility. True. Um, but yeah, I mean, for a movie that is, you know, pretty fairly subtext free in a lot of ways, that would be interesting to think about just in general, the commentary that, that the song Johnny, are you queer would have had about just male masculinity and overcompensation in general, you know, for the time and being pointed at that particular jockey, uh, uh, suburban demographic in particular. (laughs) Not just that, but like the lyrics of that song are very much so like, when I see you dancing with your friends, like <laughs> I love, right? It, and then it paired up with uh, with Tommy. They, they would routinely cut back to Tommy over and over. So it's strange. <laughs> That's funny. Jesus. I like that. Um, maybe you can answer this, but what is Julie's motivation for ditching Tommy for Randy at the end of the movie? It just seems totally flippant and 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 arbitrary. I suppose is like indicative of teenage uh, lust but like yeah teenage teenage um emotions a lack of control over your impulses but that's what i said i made you know i made that comment where i'm like you're fucking up girl you you don't you know you're you're not thinking straight and thinking for yourself because she makes it pretty abundantly clear that she's head over heels for randy and she's just simply dumping him just to pacify her friends and save face so it was never gonna stick it's it's a temporary it's a temporary solution for a permanent issue. Yeah, and I actually think you answered it somewhat. So it's not not necessarily for arbitrary reasons, but you know, going back to Tommy was was never the answer anyway. Yeah. It that, was and he's a, gay, so I guess that doesn't help. And he's gay, so yeah. <laughs> you win, Randy. <laughs> Yeah. I don't have any other uh, questions. I don't really have any questions in general, so I'm glad that you brought those up. And they were good. Those were good uh, hypotheticals to discuss. I really really enjoyed that. Thank you very much. Um, You really, really brightened up my day on this podcast with your questions. Okay, we're going to move on to our words and categories section. Here we go. Awards and categories. And starting off at the very top, we're going to talk about some quotes. 
my one of my favorite quotes in this movie is when Julie officially breaks up with Randy there at the doorstep and he gets fr- flustered and walks off and goes like fuck off for sure like totally <laughs> I could have used like more valley girl talk like I, it, it seems strange like I feel like for a movie that's called valley girl I didn't get enough like gag me yes. with a spoon like totally sure. whatever like it seems crazy that I didn't get enough of that it, um, maybe they didn't want it to be like a fucking annoying or whatever right it is it is fairly subdued given that that's that's the you know the and it's certainly there yeah but it, it, it's not it's not every other line or whatever yeah yeah they they mostly speak like normally amongst one another <laughs> sure yeah but it's punctuated here and there with with the the affectation well, the opening scene is them literally like gobsmacking gum and like just yep. like uh twirling hair and literally just like every other line is is valley girl speak <laughs> yeah um so i have another one this goes back to the randy incognito scenes and makes no sense whatsoever it's the worst uh clap back but it's still <laughs> funny to me is when tommy's walking into the theater getting his ticket and uh um he says bitchin is this in 3d and randy just responds no but your face is that's i would i that line i was thinking of ever since last night i was like i love it what i hope my face is in 3d yeah (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) anyways um Let's see what else. Oh, yeah. Julie has a good word. She says, yeah, but Tommy can be such a dork, you know, like he's got the bod, but his brains are bad news. (laughs) (laughs) That's never a recipe for fuckability. That's funny uh, to me. And also, uh, this is another Randy one. That techno rock you you guys listen to is gutless. Another one where they just didn't get it, but whatever. What is techno rock? New wave? (laughs) Yeah, Depeche Mode. It would have been like New Romantic or, you know, pop, synth pop. Synth not, not big fans of uh, Black Celebration. Huh? <laughs> Some of the great, greatest music to come from the era. Shut the fuck up, Randy. True. But you like the Plimsolls. Like, come on. Give me a fucking break. Question about the Plimsolls. Uh, do they play the same set every night? That seems like strange. Like, he goes back and they play that song again. I was like, what the hell? Yeah, no other. That's songs. not that weird though, because that would just indicate that they're like the house band of that club, which was is totally a thing, especially then where bands in L.A. before they would ever make it big, if they ever did, they would just be the house band for a club and just play night after night and build a reputation that way. That's how Motley Crue did it. That's how a lot of those bands just did it. They're they didn't actually tour until they got a record deal and then they had the money behind them. Who wants to hear Shout at the Devil again? <laughs> I mean, I do because that song rips, but well, yeah. we got to saw you on, for, I just saw you on Wednesday. So, <laughs> well, we got to wait for Nikki to get back from getting a blowjob in the bathroom. <laughs> I will wait because I love we'll that song. We'll do our five encores of Shout at the Devil. Okay. Do you have any quotes? No. I uh, Did you pull any Lauren quotes? 
I didn't. That's okay. But there are some, I'm sure, that are good. I was I so mesmerized when she was on screen. I didn't even take in, like, <laughs> what she was saying. <laughs> like a Just, rock. All right. Sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> best scene, worst scene. So, the best scene for me, uh, there's two, actually, is, again, the Skip and Beth interactions. I love those. And then I really love that that slumber party scene. It's the slumber party scene. The only thing it was missing would be like uh, Randy uh, and uh, old boy. I don't know why I struggle to remember his his name. Um, this friend, Fred. Fred. Yeah. Just think, drop dead Fred because he kind of looks like mm. that guy. I yeah, Randy and Fred doing like going on like a panty raid mission. That would have been the most quintessential eighties <laughs> fucking scene of all time. Girls slumber party, guys sneaking into. Go on a panty raid. What do you do at the end of a panty raid? Were you, were you going to sniff those in the car? <laughs> That's what I would do. But you want the used panties, right? Who's sniffing clean panties? Uh, just sniff your own sh- laundry. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> Wear them on your head. I don't know. Panty raid. That was a band I was in in high school. Panty raid? No. Damn. <laughs> the Panty Raiders. I, Indiana I, Jones and, and the Panty, and the Panty Raiders. Raiders. I, <laughs> I like that. It's like a real shitty pop punk band. <laughs> no, that um, sounds like a like a fucking like ska band. If it's this and that and this, <laughs> if it's like this and the the and the that, it's yeah, that's a ska band. What's a worse scene? <laughs> Hmm. I just, I just genuinely hate the Julie, uh, Julie interacting with her dad at like the, it's like a health food store. What the hell is that thing? Yeah. They own a health food store. She talks about it. She's like, she's like so bummed out, dude, because but she's they like, why come they like, that's what's so strange about it. Yeah. But that happens. Yeah. So it's like a Georgetown market. You wor- <laughs> yeah. You worked at a we health food store. Food, you know that though. That like but a they counter. do that. They do that. I worked at a co-op here in Seattle where they serve food Got at it a deli me, counter and you go and sit down and eat it. Her parents so much more. <laughs> yeah, that that scene then. All right. Fair enough. I didn't really have one, but that sure that that works. Um, OK, uh, the Dahmer hardly newer award for the most killer performance. I put down Deb Foreman and Liz Daly. You probably are going to lean more towards E.G. Daly, right? I'm assuming. Yeah, absolutely. Of course. Most killer performance. Not not to, not to sideline our boy Nick Coppola, but I mean he's fine in this movie. But as we stated, he's still yeah. trying to. He's still he's still getting his water wings, finding his footing. Still, yeah, you know he's he's okay. He does a serviceable job as Randy, but it's nothing that's blowing my mind. Um, the Michael Rooker Award for the most evil fucker, I guess Tommy. Yeah, Tommy Tommy versus his sexuality is a hard battle. He's being <laughs> so hard ju- on himself. Or <laughs> <laughs> just Julie's friends in general. Julie's friends suck. Yeah, so. they're, that, they're not helping anything. There's no one in here who is like, quote unquote, evil. Yeah. So that's tough. That's a tough ask. Maybe Julie's dad. No. For all the, you know sexual inappropriate shit he does oh jeez, my jeez, louise <laughs> but here 
here's the thing, though, to kind of um, foreshadow some of the info in the wiki wormhole, that actor we can attribute to being an evil fucker, fucker when I get into that. Wow. And See, it's, it's I gonna, knew my my radar was was on about something with that guy. Yeah, your 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 mind's going to get fucking blown, man. Fucking blown. Um, I can't wait. The recasting couch, the only major one, aside from fantasy recasting, uh, that I could bring up was Michelle Pfeiffer was slated to be cast as Julie. Really? That would have been really mm-hmm. cool. I actually, I would have loved that. That would have been awesome. That would have been cool, but also I don't think Michelle Pfeiffer, Pfeiffer at any point in her career has has the innocent demeanor She's not innocent enough. 1983 to, Michelle Pfeiffer, though. I mean, shit. I mean, what did she even... Was she even in, like, in anything at that point? No. I I don't know. I don't think it so. It would have been like, a, she, like her breakout. For, like, my first movie was Valley Girl. Like, it would have been one of those. Yeah, I mean... I mean, she was in Scarface, right? So, that would have been like one of her first roles. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, uh, I like that though. Okay, it's fine. Not 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 ideal for me, but I could see her doing it. Body count, of course, zero. This is a this is a two uh, two for two on zero body counts. Uh, so I wish a, this had like a twelve. <laughs> <laughs> Just where it actually turned into a proper '80s slasher, the Valley Girl Massacre. Yeah, everyone started getting it. That would been cool fucking chainsaw through the, that that awkward dance party at the beginning. Save everyone but Lauren. Everyone throw your bodies in front of Lauren so she can get out like the bathroom window, please. The slasher comes in and Gigi Allen breaks in behind him and like just shits on all the corpses and Boy. the cast of, of uh, Return of the Living Dead come in and everybody turns to zombies and that's the movie we need. It could get real wild. Okay, so here we go. Getting into the wiki wormhole. This one is chock full of some pretty fun stuff. So lots of cool rock and roll trivia. Lots of cool uh, cast associations to get into. So at the top, you know the scene where Randy's coming out of the club when he's you know he's bummed out. He's in the he's in the bummer the bummer gutter about Julie and he's getting fucked up and he he just banged his ex girlfriend in the uh, bathroom there and he mm-hmm. stumbles out of the club and he tries to start shit with those the Vato guys the gang members. <laughs> yep, yep. So the lowrider guy that comes out and is about to stomp Randy's ass, that's the actor Tony Plana. And he played, do you remember Manny from Seinfeld, the super that doesn't speak any English? That's that dude. Wow. That's incredible. (laughs) Love good Seinfeld trivia. Love good Seinfeld trivia. I also love that character of Manny about how, like Otho, the guy who played Otho in Beetlejuice, who's his partner, is his interpreter. Manny doesn't speak any English. And he's just... He's just using him as his uh, interpreter to Jerry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's only speaking Spanish that. or whatever. I love it so much. Um, okay, so here's the, the little bit of trivia that's going to fuck you up. Julie's dad, the actor that plays Julie's dad, is Frederick Forrest. Not only did he play Chef from Apocalypse Now, the, the saucier, remember? Yeah. That? Mm-hmm. 
He is also the Nazi surplus guy from Falling Down. Hold on. (laughs) (laughs) I knew knew Uh, you would. He's Nazi Nick? He's Nazi Nick. I'm I'm at a loss for words here. (laughs) And also Loki, a Sonny Bono impersonator, but. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Good call. Good call on that. Wow. Unbelievable. Yeah, he's Nazi Nick. So does that guy not? So that I, I thought you were going to say that that actor like uh, has been outed as a pedophile or something. No, no, that was he's as far as I know he's he's got a clean record. Other than he played a a, a psychopathic Nazi surplus army surplus guy. Damn, that is yeah. So Frederick Forrest, that's mm-hmm. that's him. Unbelievable! Wow. Yeah. Another little fun. Uh, Casting tidbit here, and speaking of Penelope uh, Spheris, Julie's mom, who's played by Colin Camp, is also Mrs. Vanderhoof from Wayne's World. Yes, I did. I did know that. Yeah, yeah. So that's fun. That was a good callback. Um, here's a little bit of the rock and roll trivia: the Plimsolls were formed by Peter Case, who came from the band The Nerves, who were the original group to. Uh, write the song "Hanging on the Telephone" that was covered by Blondie really? and was turned into a hit. Yeah, huh. so there you go. Again, the, the actual musical groups that grace our screen are the the most punk thing about the movie. Yeah, and well, and that's the thing. Like the Nerves do have a connection with punk because uh, they were like a early power pop punk group, and they went on tour with the Ramones before they broke up. So there is all these other connections other than what's actually happening on the screen. Which brings me to the next little tidbit. I actually didn't know this. I was surprised about this. I knew about the other things beforehand. The song Johnny Are You Queer was originally performed by the Go-Go's when they were more of a punk band. The guys who wrote that ended up selling it to uh, Josie Cotton and her band because one of the guys ended up dating Josie Cotton. Yeah, I had... uh... No idea about any of that. Yeah, and I, I looked up the uh, Go-Go's version. It's pretty good. It's like a, just a straight ripping, like kind of early punk. Uh, I mean, even down. the Josie Cotton. Yeah, it's very, uh, very. It's like I could see both doing it. It's very Go-Go's-y. Yeah, for sure. But I like both versions. I think I still like I like the, the Josie Cotton version still a little bit better. But um. The club scenes where Randy takes Julie were filmed at a Sunset Strip Club originally named Filthy McNasties in the 60s and 70s. In the 80s, it was called The Central. It was later purchased by Johnny Depp, and he turned it into The Viper Room, which was the place where River Phoenix died. I've been to The Viper Room. Ipso facto, he killed River Phoenix. Pretty much. I mean, Johnny Depp has been established being a pretty terrible man at this point, so... He might have. I don't know. Well, yeah. He he, he filthy McNasty'd him. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't. He certainly didn't help. I mean, he didn't put the needle in his arm, but uh, he gave he him He provided the, the venue to... Yeah. He built, that, he built the house in which to do so. Yeah. He, yeah. That was the shooting gallery. So there's that. Deb, I didn't know this. Um and this is why I said I feel like there is good chemistry between uh, Nick Cage and Deb Foreman on on screen. Is they were actually were dating 
during the time of this movie. That's the only thing I read. Um, and I was that struck me as surprising. And then I don't I don't really know why, but that makes sense, I guess. Yeah. This was always a question that I had forever and just never sought to find an answer for until you know we decided to do this. So if you notice that the cover art and poster, the promotional poster for this movie, the woman on the poster is clearly not Deb Foreman. It's a different woman. Oh. And I always like speculated on why that was. And I was like, well, a lot of times what happens is when they make movies, they make the promotional um, material for it before the movie's actually finished and then they just put that out into the world and then once it's out in the world and they do any recasting or anything like that it's hard to to change it or to make any more it's just not in the budget to correct that error so whatever it just gets put out there into the world and and that's that so that woman on the on the poster is actually Samantha who is Randy's ex that he bones at the at the club there when is she's not a blonde in the movie. Is she not like that dark hair? That's the thing. Yeah. She has dark hair, which is also weird. She's blonde on the poster, but it's, yeah. it's that it's woman. Everything about that is very strange. <laughs> Since she's got like three minutes screen time and she's on the po- poster. She's immortalized on the poster. Did apparently they, that, was she ever supposed to be Julie? I guess that's what I don't know. I don't know if she was supposed to have a larger role and they changed it when they did rewrites, whatever. But there she is. It sucks that they she got called and was like, uh, you're not going to be Julie, so you're not going to have the lead role. But uh, we do have a you're scene on the for phone. you. We're getting banged in a bathroom. She's like, OK, yeah. when do I and shoot on the poster? You're immortalized on yes, the cover. And you'll be on. <laughs> yeah, so strange. That's so weird. Yeah. Um, so when Randy and Fred are in, in the Hollywood Hills overlooking the valley, Randy takes out this little orange thing, you know, and he blows on. That's called a wowie whistle. And they were <laughs> novel, they were novelty harmonicas made from orange chewing wax and were popular Halloween treats in the 70s and 80s. What so get, your, get yourself a wowie whistle. I will. And I don't know what I'll do with it. <laughs> Maybe it can double as a rape whistle, possibly. Fun. Let me get that my wowie fun. whistle out. I'm in mortal danger. Stop. Stop. <laughs> Stop. I need to get out. Of- <laughs> um, so Lee Purcell, who plays uh, Beth Brent, and this is the reason why I thought about even doing this movie, because like I told on told you on the last episode, I saw that made for TV movie with Lee Purcell in it. But uh, when she's trying to seduce Skip, she mentions plastics. And that is a reference to The Graduate, the movie The Graduate, which was also a movie about a younger man having an affair with an older woman. So she's throwing him a hint by by quoting that movie and he doesn't get it. I didn't pick up on that either. Yeah. So um, the producers of the film approached Frank Zappa about making a film based on his hit single Valley Girl, which was released a year before, but he refused, leading the producers to make the film without him. And then he sued them, but he lost. Did he coin the term with that song or was it before or did he make a song after a term that had already been popularized? See, that's what I don't know. I, I, Chicken I, and I feel the like egg. I, yeah, I'm getting I'm getting conflicting intel on that. Did he write that like with his daughter or whatever? Yeah, with Moon Unit. 
moon unit. Oh my lordy. Okay, so <laughs> it does seem like though that if he had a vested interest in, it seems like he may have coined that term. Yeah, but I'm, in, in I'm terms not, of intellectual property, it was probably really hard in a court of law to be like, they made a movie right. after my song. Right. Yeah, I could see why that wouldn't have stuck, but I honestly don't know. I mean, the, the information I read made it sound like he was the one that coined it. It was basically his concept and he had, yeah, he had intellectual rights to the idea and term Valley Girl, but I don't know. Yeah, don't know. own Valley Girl, man. It's it's conceptually out there in the cosmos. You can't tangibly grab that. Yeah, that is one of those kind of... Uh, that's a that's a meta question, my it friend. It is a feeling. It's not something you can own, Frank, and moon unit. <laughs> uh, this is one of Kevin Smith and Quentin Tarantino's favorite movies. Well, Kevin Smith, I'm I'm not uh, I'm not shocked. Yeah, Tarantino. Apparently, I'm a little bit surprised. Apparently, he showed it during his uh, when his uh, daughter was being born in the Tarantino in the, uh, or no Kevin Smith. He showed it while his wife was giving birth and while she was in labor. They I watched can't think movie. of anything less I would want to watch when I was in, in excruciating pain. Yeah, I just think that's just weird in general to watch a movie while you're going through labor. I don't know. That doesn't seem yeah like I'm it would trying be in to any think way like what relaxing. movie would I would I put on during labor? <laughs> like I'm obviously not in labor, but what movie would I put my <laughs> my wife would lose her damn mind if <laughs> if I was like yeah, hold on, baby. I'm going to put a cliffhanger on real quick. <laughs> <laughs> just focus. Just in focus there. Your Remember your Lamaze classes. I got, I'm going to put Sly on the screen to ease this, ease us into this. Hey, everything's going to be all right. The baby's going to come out great. That was, your impressions are usually spot on. I don't know how I feel about that slide impression. Hey, uh, yo. Hey, what's wrong with this? Oh, no. He's Luigi now. (laughs) Hey, yo. It's right here. Hey, yo. It's me, uh, Sylvester. Hey. Oh, no, no. That's a big no no. (laughs) After your Arnold being so uh, on point, it's disappointing. It's disappointing. Did somebody say Arnold? <laughs> I thought I heard my name. He's back on the pod. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, so on the poster, the promotional poster at the club uh, for upcoming acts, you see the Plimsolls and you see the name Katie Seagal, which is Katie Seagal from Futurama and Married with Children. She was... Uh, scheduled to play at that club that that was shot in because she previously had a career in music. She was a backup singer for a lot of groups and yeah, she worked with Gene Simmons and wow. So before she became Peg Bundy, she had a whole nother life as a, that's unbelievable. Yeah. So that's interesting. Speaking of another, like speaking of crushes, man, I always had a big crush on Katie Seagal as, as a Peg Bundy. I'm not sure where I land with that. Um, that certainly wasn't like she's not unattractive, but it wasn't like it's not Mount Crushmore material for me. Fair enough. For me, I would put her up there. Um, let's see what else. That's it. 
Oh, no, no, no. Sorry. This is the other thing I wanted to get to. Because <laughs> we were talking a lot about the boobs, obviously. Mm. This is an interesting little side note. Um, Martha Coolidge was required by the producers to show female breasts at least four times. Because they felt it would make the movie more appealing to younger males. Dino De Laurentiis did this shit? What the hell is going on? Right? More boobs. Boob quota, huh? Okay. And they have a boob quota. That um, is not. That's really nuts and uncomfortable to be like, we need to tell our female director to show rip, more, rip some of these tops off. Yeah, but also show more teenage boob. Teenage titties. <laughs> need them more. I mean... Yeah, I'm conflicted with that because it's like, don't get to see EGD. I do get to see EGD, but they forced me to see it. It was like, I hope she was on board. It's a real devil and angel on my shoulder. Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> don't really know what to think. I am so confused. <laughs> I don't know how to feel. Grateful yet conflicted. I don't know. I have a regret boner. Well, like I said, EGD... Here is my ED, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, this is an interesting little foreshadowing that w- that you know has a, a spooky vibe to it. Maybe it was a little a premonition. Oh, it goes back to the beginning ah, of my, yeah. my intro. Here is where it gets spooky. Um, Deb Foreman can be seen wearing a Woody Woodpecker pin on her shirt early in the film. Four years later, Nick Cage would star in Raising Arizona, playing a character he said. Who looks? Whose look was inspired by Woody Woodpecker? That seems Ooh, seems very coincidental. It's very tangential. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 you're really reaching for that one. But anyways, <laughs> I, 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 that is weird. Um, I had one more thing, two more things, but I'm just going to say this. This is for you. This is this is for you, Pat, because this will tickle you. Um, I tickle know me, Daddy. Going, You've been going through the uh, your Arnold marathon lately. Arnold, Alice, did somebody no, say no. my name again? Arnold he's, he's is back. He's no, in the building. No, we didn't call you. We'll, we'll have you back next week. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> I can't wait. Um, but anyways, speaking of Arnold, this movie has two filming locations in common with Commando. Julie's parents' health food restaurant was filmed only a quarter of a mile from Casa de Cadillac where Cook helps himself to a free Cadillac. And also, when Julie, Stacy, Randy, and Fred are leaving the party after Fred and Randy went back for Julie and Stacy, they go through the same intersection, which is Beverly and Glenn and Mulholland Drive, that John Matrix and Cindy go through while chasing Sully. Hmm. How cool. That's awesome. That's all I got. That is it. That's a plethora, a real treasure trove. A lot, a lot of back end little, little fun tidbits and and treats and and uh, wowie whistles for you. Wowie whistle! Wow, I'm gonna blow my wowie whistle. Throw in the whoop. It actually makes a very like we kind of just. (laughs) It's not even a very prominent whistle. It's more just like. Yeah, don't trust the wowie whistle with any of your. Assault concerns. There's nothing wowy about it at all. No. Okay. Now we're gonna rate it. I say, let's see, what kind of iconography can we give this? Out of five wowy whistles. There you go. 
No, well, that, we really stumbled on that. Okay. <laughs> I have five wowie whistles. I was going to rate this higher, but you know what? I'm going to I'm going to reel it back. Reel back my enthusiasm for this movie. I gave it a four out of five. You were going to almost near perfect score this. <laughs> I knew you would say something. So Unbelievable. I, I thought it was in a four and you're like, I'll give it a three. I can't believe yeah. this is a uh, this is up there. Four out of five. I know I'm going to put you on the spot and you won't be able to, or maybe you will come through. But what have we given as a five? Do you remember all of your fives? I don't know if I remember any of my fives. I think the, I think unequivocally we both gave Manhunter a five. Did we We gave Manhunter a five? We gave uh, Dead Alive a five, five out of five. We both gave Dead Alive a five. What? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it just doesn't come around very often. Is what I'm. Is what I'm saying. Well, as it should. It. I mean, no, I would, we that would, would be suck. doing. Our, <laughs> yeah, we would be doing ourselves a disservice as critics and reviewers if we gave everything a perfect score. Now, granted, there is a podcast, a movie podcast that's actually quite enjoyable called Every Movie Is Good. We'll leave that to them because they will talk about anything and it's well, all they just crap. get to the, the end of it and they're like well that was a perfect movie another five out of five we'll see you next week <laughs> every movie is good but yeah. actually that podcast is funny because they they really don't even talk about movies it's all like it's all dick and fart and poop jokes and then oh by the way what do you think of this movie kind of squeezed in there damn that's an interesting <laughs> <laughs> way to run a, run a podcast <laughs> it's like it's funny because uh while i was talking to nate about it because we we're talking about that podcast come town which is basically also just pee pee poo poo jokes but it's like the come town of movie podcasts yeah that that's um you're not selling it in terms of like making me want to listen to it <laughs> <laughs> but maybe i would like um, it but yeah, I don't know. I know there's other there was other perfect score ones, but the main ones I remember, yeah, Dead Alive, probably Manhunter. Maybe Maniac, but I'm not sure. I don't think I gave Maniac a 5. Maybe you you there, may have. There well, hasn't been Go ahead. No, I'm just trying to think like this this season in particular. I don't know if there's been very many. Well, having said that, due to the low replay value, the like Disney Channel punk stuff, <laughs> the rehashing dragging the the Romeo and Juliet shit back out of the shed, I'll give it a two out of five. Another split. Hey, I, I know something. That I can that I can foretell right now. We're, we are not going to be split about next week unless it's just something you hadn't seen yet. But and if you hadn't seen it, I know you will love it. Well, that's funny that you mentioned that. Well, I, I don't want to get too far ahead because we got to we got to put this on the clock. I put it at 11 p.m. just because I feel like this is a nice slumber party pizza. The boobs force this to midnight. I, I feel like okay. it has to. It, that's just my opinion. No, I don't disagree with that either. You're right. 11 to midnight, definitely for sure, because of the boobs, but also the fun uh, slumber party aspect of it. Agreed. Yeah, for sure. Okay. okay. So I'm excited to hear what you have to off offer. I will say to forecast a little bit also, I only have one more movie coming up, and I know 
that we will both just fucking like gush our balls over the movie that I picked because it's one that I've had on deck for a while and I just keep putting it off, putting it off. And since it'll be not officially the season finale of, of the of the the season, but it'll be my personal finale. I know that at least my last movie, we're both going to be just uh, jerking each other off about. But go ahead. That's not till two weeks from now. What, Pat, are we, lis- are we listening? Listening to and watching, we're using multiple senses here, on, on, on the next episode. Well, yeah, let's uh, let's end. Let's end strong. Uh, this was not something I was planning on picking. And this this movie forced my hand. So Valley Girl actually predicated my choice. So, dude, if I'm thinking <laughs> what I'm thinking, oh, man. I doubt it. I, okay. I just yearned for uh, I was thinking of like, what, what are some like interpretations, honest interpretations uh, or maybe goofy interpretations of punk from the 80s? And there was a plethora to choose from. Nothing that I've uh, that I mentioned on today's episode. But oh, okay. I did think this is one of my uh, my favorite movies of that, like suburbia repo man uh, 80s genre. We're watching. Mark Lester's class of 1984. Oh, fuck. Yes, my dude. Yeah, which I think is a, an obvious uh, a, a lot more. <laughs> they did their research oh, yeah. and their homework a little bit more. And oh, I, yeah. I, I it is like what this movie kind of is. It's obviously not trying to be like it's like a hyper like crime action thriller kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But and it's not a yeah. rom-com, obviously, but they, they exist in this similar universe where punk is still being kind of uh, handled on screen and interpreted in different ways. Um, yeah. But I think it, it's obviously a lot more of an honest interpretation. And so funny that you mentioned Commando because Mark Lester did commando directed commando um all within the same breath of time so yeah no that movie is sick so yeah here we're gonna redeem ourselves a little bit and 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 mend our wounds that we've been inflicting on each other Um, i knew you'd specifically be excited yeah no that movie is great and i haven't watched in a while so it'll be good to revisit it so i'm excited wonderful okay This has been another deep dive into Midnight Movie Madness. Big thanks to Charlotte Blythe for our intro music. Our outro music today was going to be... uh, I had a few different choices on deck, but ultimately, because I was going to pick some that were like directly associated with the movie. But I think I'm just going to go ahead and pick the nerves hanging on the telephone because it's a jammer of a track. And it is tangentially related to this movie. So we're just going to go out on that. Cool. Um, if you have any questions, uh, feel free to drop us a line at midnightflixpod at gmail.com. That's F-L-I-X. Or visit us on Instagram. And make sure that, you know, if you check us out, rate, respond, do all that stuff. Give us a like, whatever. And I think that's it. So for co-host Pat Mitchell, I am Adam Walker. And we're going to see you in class next time, punks. Punks.
We're talking about real punks, because we're punks. We know what punk is. It's not. I love that. Just kidding. Two episodes in a row.